I'm so happy to be with you this morning, happy to be back in Africa and be with my friends here at Calvary Chapel El Duret. And since I don't make it here as often as I would like, this morning I'm going to make the most of my opportunity and I'm going to teach you 42 chapters. Would that be okay? 42 chapters this morning. We're going to cover a whole book of the Bible, an Old Testament book that's very important. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. To the book of Job, we're going to cover 42 chapters, but we're going to start by reading just one verse. Job chapter 31, verse 35. What I want to deal with this morning is the subject, when God doesn't give a reason. When God doesn't give a reason, I want us to look at God's dealings with this man, Job. Before we read our text, would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your wonderful word. Lord, thank you for uh, how it speaks to us in so many ways. Lord, I have no doubt that you have a message for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for this time of worship. Thank you, Lord, that we could get our eyes on you, that we could reverence you, Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Lord, please speak to us this morning now as we Work our way through this wonderful book. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. In Job 31, verse 35, Job cries out, Oh, that I had one to hear me, here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book. Where I live, there is a plant known as poison ivy. If you brush up against it, it creates a burning rash. It's very itchy, very, very painful. I've learned that here in Africa, you have a similar plant. I believe it's called the pain bush. Anybody familiar with this? The pain bush, okay. It's African poison ivy. Well, once a father, he was discussing with his children how God created everything. How God created the clouds and the trees and the rocks and the rivers and the animals. That God had a good reason for all that he had created. That's when his youngest son asked, if God has a good purpose for everything, then why did he create the pain bush? The father didn't know how to answer. Well, finally, one of his other children came to the rescue. He explained The reason God made the pain bush is because he wants us to know there are certain things in life we just need to keep our hands off of. A good explanation indeed. I believe when we get to heaven, every story begun in this life will finish with a happy ending. There is a good reason for everything God does. The problem, though, is that we don't always see his purpose. There are issues in life, like the pain bush, that cause great grief, and for no apparent reason. Some situations appear to have no sane, logical explanation, and we wonder why. How do you respond when bad things happen and God gives no reason why? As Christians, we believe that God is sovereign. That means God does whatever he likes, whenever he likes, however he likes, to whomever he likes. God rules the universe, both good and evil. God is the boss. In fact, you can read the first chapter of the book of Job 
And you'll notice that Satan can't harm a single hair on Job's head without first getting God's permission. Nothing happens in our lives or in the universe for that matter that isn't at the very least permitted by God. Of course, God's sovereignty is a wonderful doctrine when circumstances are pleasant, when our lives are going well, or we're delighted that God has chosen to bless us. But what's your attitude when life takes a turn for the worse and for no apparent reason? In my early years as a Christian, I had a friend who was a captivating Bible teacher. Dan had a growing ministry. He was a husband and a father of five kids. His teaching and ministry were influencing thousands of lives for Jesus, including my own. I'll never forget the day when I heard on the radio the prop plane that he had been flying had slammed into the side of a mountain. The news crushed my heart. And I can remember crying out, God, why? Look at all he's doing for your kingdom, Lord. Why this? This is also how I respond today when I hear of a hurricane or a tsunami that devastates and floods out a coastline or a family on holiday involved in a serious accident or a virtuous woman who gets raped or an innocent child who's targeted by terrorists or a hardworking husband who gets laid off and can no longer feed his family or a child born with a severe handicap or a follower of Jesus diagnosed with a cancer, or a mysterious virus that attacks the population, killing people, shutting down church and business alike. What happens to your faith when you encounter these kinds of terrible situations? How do you respond when bad stuff happens to good people, even God's people, and you see nothing good result? Have you ever asked why? Oh my, have you ever screamed why? How do you deal with the pain bush in your life? Well, understand, Job dealt with plenty of pain. In the first two chapters of the book, we learn how that overnight, Job lost everything. His fortune, his family, his fitness, even his friends. And usually a man in such distress can lean on the comfort of a devoted wife. Oh, but not Job. You remember what Mrs. Job told him? She said, why don't you just curse God and die? Not exactly what you want to hear from your wife who's supposed to be supporting you after a hard day. Job was surrounded by troubles. If you think you have problems, just check out our man Job. And realize the truth. Job did nothing to deserve what had happened to him. In fact, Job gets vindicated from the outset. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that Job was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. In chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord himself says that all that happened to Job came upon him, and I quote, without a cause. Yes, Job was human, and like all humans, he was a sinner. But he had done nothing specific to warrant his calamity. In fact, if you doubt Job's devotion to God, just look at the initial reaction to his loss in chapter 1, verse 21. There he utters these words, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
To me, that is one of the most strongest statements of faith in all the scripture. Job chapter 1, verse 22, sums up Job's part in his many afflictions. In all this, Job did not sin. Now, in Job chapters 1 and 2, we are told why all this devastation occurred in Job's life. You see, Job got caught in the middle of a cosmic showdown between God and Satan. One day, the devil appeared before God in the heavenly hosts. And like a proud papa, God mentioned the piety of his servant Job. Well, Satan just scoffed. He said, God, you've blessed Job so abundantly. Why wouldn't he serve you? You've spoiled him. Just allow a little hardship loose in his life, and Job will turn on you in a heartbeat. Ironically, rather than being punished for some evil deed, Job's agony was caused by just the opposite. God was so proud of Job's devotion that he staked his honor on Job's reaction. Without knowing it, Job was serving as the appointed protector of God's glory. You know, whenever I read the book of Job, I'm struck by an often overlooked fact, and that's this. Job never read the first two chapters of the book of Job. He never did. See, we're told why he suffered, but not Job. Until the day he died, he never got an explanation for his calamity. God never told Job why. But that sure didn't stop his friends from trying to answer the question. And for the bulk of the book, chapters 3 through 31, three friends, if you want to call them that, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, each take turns offering their explanations for the cause of Job's sufferings. At the end of chapter 2, each of Job's friends pay him a visit. And when they arrive, they find Job, he's sitting in the middle of the ash heap. He's scratching his oozing sores with a clay shard, with a broken piece of pottery. And for seven days, they just sit there in silence, mourning for their friend. As it turns out, just sitting there with Job, being there for Job, is really the only benefit that they offered. For when they open their mouths, they begin to torture Job with erroneous counsel. In chapter 16, verse 2, Job tells his friends how much help they were. He says, miserable comforters are you all. See, Job's friends are like many people today who are trapped in a restrictive, a defective theology. I like to call it a baby theology. It's the simplistic view. It's the false belief that in this life, sin is always punished and good is always rewarded. Thus, when bad things happen, it means that the victim must have committed some sin. And as children, our experiences with our mother and father seem to confirm this belief. Parents see to it that our good deeds are prized and that our disobedience is punished. But then we move out into the real world and we discover that's not always how life pans out. Bad things do happen to good people. Bad people often get away with their crimes. Life in a fallen world doesn't always work out the way we think it should. Circumstances aren't always just. Life isn't always fair. Pastor Josh and I share a commonality. We both like to play golf. 
Golf is a sport where you take a stick, a club, hit a little ball, try to put it in that hole. It looks easy, but it's really very difficult. In fact, sometimes you can make solid contact. You can hit a really good shot, but due to the wind or due to the tree being in the wrong place or some other obstacle, you end up with a bad result. Whereas at other times, you can hit a weak shot, really a bad shot, but the ball happens to carry them off a tree trunk and it just ends up in a good location. See, golf too isn't always fair. And sometimes golfers make the mistake of assuming their outcome is always tied to the result of their effort. So that good shots should yield good results and bad shots should always create bad outcomes. But again, that's not true. And that's what makes the sport of golf so frustrating. This is what makes life so frustrating. Good and godly people can experience hardship whereas bad people can prosper for their evil. Life isn't always just. And this is what Job's friends have a hard time accepting. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they become adamant. For 29 chapters, they try to prove that Job has done something to deserve the suffering that has come upon him. In fact, at points in the dialogue, they even make stuff up. They make up accusations. Tragically, Job's friends try every tactic imaginable to pin a sin on Job. And there are Christians today who hold to this same faulty theology. Prosperity teachers. I'm sure Pastor Josh has warned you about them. They preach that a true man of God, a real person of faith, will experience only wellness and prosperity. They'll say, oh, do the right thing and you'll be rich. You'll be healthy and happy. But what they preach isn't biblical. It wasn't true of Job. I have a dear friend who suffers from chronic asthma, breathing problems. She's a godly lady. She's a woman of prayer. Yet her Christian friends also insisted that her suffering had to be the result of some sin in her life. Her friends, like Job's friends, went to great effort to unfairly pin a sin on her. See, here's the problem with this kind of defective theology. It backs you into a corner so that when bad stuff happens, you only have two options. Either God failed or you sinned. And that's why Job's friends insist that the problem is Job. For if it isn't in their minds, it means that God has failed and they're not about to entertain that possibility. In reality, though, neither conclusion was true. God had not failed, nor had Job sinned. The real cause of Job's sufferings was hidden in the heavens. You see, Job knows there's a reason. There has got to be another option. He just doesn't see it. And learning why becomes the burning issue in Job's life. Isn't it amazing how that one word, why, W-H-Y, it's just three little letters, W-H-Y, but it can become the biggest obstacle to our faith. Sometimes Christians forget Genesis 3, that because of Adam's sin, we no longer live in a perfect world. Due to his choice, 
He's made life now subject to pain and to suffering. Life can get rough. You and the people you love are subject to hurt and hardship. And often when things happen, we get no reason. He loves you, Lord. Why did this happen to him? Have you ever asked that? Oh, she loves you. She's such a good person, Lord, not her. We've all asked these questions. Job 2 was good and godly, but virtue didn't insulate him from pain in his life. And remember, it wasn't Job's sin that made him a target for hardships. It was his goodness. Don't be deceived. Just because a person is hurting doesn't mean they're sinning. And just because they're thriving doesn't necessarily mean that God is pleased. It does pay to be good and godly. But payday doesn't always come in this life. In the here and now, calamity can strike even the godliest among us. Difficulties can hit without explanation. Faith doesn't always get a reason. So don't let life back you into a corner. When things go wrong, we think we only have two options. Either God failed or I'm a failure. And since none of us are going to blame God, it's got to be me. And so we beat ourselves up. We condemn ourselves. But remember the story of Job. When bad stuff happens, it doesn't mean God has failed, nor does it mean that you have sinned. There could be a reason hidden from view. Only heaven knows the whole story. And God is expecting you and I to trust in him. And this is why our responses on earth really do matter. For in a mysterious way, unknown to you and me, God's reputation may be hanging on the way we handle a hassle or a hindrance or a hardship. Think about it. God's honor in heaven, his glory may be riding on your reaction to the twists and turns life throws your way. See, to me, the message of Job is the most practical in all the Bible. It ups the importance on everything that goes on in my life. My every reaction becomes strategic. Think of it. Every eye in heaven may be fixed on you to see how you handle that illness that comes upon you or that lie that's told about you. Will you fold or will you be faithful? This book teaches us a vital lesson, which is this. The stress in my life may just be a test of my faith. Listen, Satan has accused God of buying our devotion with his blessing, of bribing us all. He says the only reason any of us serve God is to receive his blessings. None of us truly love God for who he is. And Satan has issued God the challenge. If you stop their blessing, they'll stop their devotion. And just like Job, do you realize God may have chosen you to prove otherwise? Think about it. God's character may be on the line in heaven, and it's your response to difficulty that wins the day. Hey, more may be going on than we realize. The one certainty is that our reactions really do matter. I have no doubt Job would have gladly suffered for God if he'd just been told the glorious effect that his faithfulness was having in heaven. The problem, though, is that Job never got a hint. Understand, Job's greatest grief was not caused by his material losses or even the boils on his body. Job's most excruciating pain 
was not knowing why. You know, I found the best pain reliever by far is not a medication, it's an explanation. If there's a good reason behind my suffering, I tend to rise to the occasion. I can endure it patiently. But how do you and I respond when God refuses to give us a reason? It's like going to the doctor to get a shot or going to the clinic to get a shot. I don't know about you, but I don't like shots. Oh boy. I hate shots. But if I'm told the reason for the shot, then maybe I can accept it and endure it. And I might even be thankful for it. But what if I were given a series of shots without being told their reason? I wouldn't be as tolerant. In fact, I would get downright ugly and upset. I'd begin to pound my fist down on the pulpit and I would demand to know why. And that's what Job begins to do. He begins to pound his fist. And over the course of the dialogue with his three friends, Job demands more and more and more to know why. In chapter 7, verse 11, Job even grows bitter. He moans these words. I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. It's interesting the word complain occurs more times in Job than any other book of the Bible. Did you know that nearly half of the complaints recorded in all the scripture fall from the lips of this one man, Job? We speak of the patience of Job, but the person with the real patience in this story was God. God was the one who had to put up with Job spewing bitterness. See, here's what happens. Job loses perspective, and that is easy for a sufferer to do. Job forgets who God is, his holiness and his righteousness. Job grows bold and brash as he questions God in Job's mind, in his own estimation. Job becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and God grows smaller and smaller and smaller. It's been said in asking why, Job loses his way. And by the time we get to our text, the verse that we read earlier, Job 31 verse 35, Job believes God owes him an answer. In fact, he demands it in writing. He says, oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. Hey, God, I want a reason, and I want you to write it out. Arrogance has replaced Job's innocence. Job has become so sure of himself that he started to doubt God. And at one point in the dialogue, Job, in essence, says to his friends, If my only options are I've sinned or God has failed, then God has failed because I certainly haven't sinned. Job, who do you think you are? Job comes very, very close to blasphemy. In his commentary on Job, author Don Baker, he makes this point about pain. He says, pain speaks a strange language. It plays funny tricks on us. It makes us think things, say things, even believe things that are not true. When pain bores its way through human flesh into the human spirit and then just sits there and hurts and hurts, the mind becomes clouded and the brain begins to think strange thoughts like God is dead or he's gone fishing or he just doesn't care. And you see, pain was having this kind of effect on Job. 
So that toward the end of Job's discourses, he starts challenging God to speak. He charges God with giving him a raw deal. He accuses God of being unfair. In his attempts to vindicate himself, Job accuses God. Job is more into proving his own innocence than he is in upholding God's justice. In short, Job develops a bad attitude. Always remember, there are chapters in your story that God has yet to write. The Zophars of this world can only speak so far. God had a glorious outcome for Job. In the end, he got double the blessings that he had had before. But until the day he died, he never learned the why behind his trials. Friends, some situations have reasons that will only make sense to us when we get to heaven. Today we live a temporal, earthbound existence. And that is why it is wrong for us from our limited perspective to question or criticize an eternal God. We're told in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Never forget one of the first rules of theology. Where God has placed a period, don't you change it to a question mark. If God doesn't offer you an explanation, learn to live without one. Don't push it. Ultimatums don't work on God. He's calling us to trust in his wisdom. So here's the big question for you and me this morning. Can we trust God even when we can't trace him? Oh, it's easy to praise God when we see his hand at work, when his blessings, even his lessons are tangible. But is our faith alive enough to survive in the dark? Did you hear about the four Kenyans? They were traveling as passengers on a train from Nairobi to Eldoret. All four Kenyans, they were seated in the same compartment. There was an Arsenal football fan. There was a Manchester United football fan. There was a gorgeous young woman. And there was an elderly lady. Well, everyone was being very cordial until the train passed through this long, dark tunnel. Suddenly, there was a loud kiss, followed by an equally loud slap. Well, as they exited the tunnel, the passengers sat there quietly looking at each other, trying to sort out what the noises had meant. Well, the beautiful woman, she thought, isn't that odd? A Manchester United fan tries to kiss an elderly woman and not me. The elderly lady, she thought, my, that young girl, she's a good girl. She has some fine morals. The man you fan, he thought, wow, that Arsenal fan is a smart guy. He steals a kiss and I get slapped. While the Arsenal fan, he's sitting there gloating. He's thinking, perfect. I kiss the back of my hand, slap a Manchester United fan, and nobody ever knows. Sometimes things happen in the dark. God chooses not to reveal his specific reasons. And if we're not careful, we can draw the wrong conclusions, can't we? Oh, yes, we can. Reminds me of the little boy who was scared of the dark. Late one night, his mother asked him to go behind the hut and fetch the broom. He was scared. He said, but mom, it's dark out there. The mother told him, said, honey, don't worry. Jesus is always with you. He's with you wherever you go, even when you're in the dark. The little guy, he walked to the door. He cracked it open an inch. 
And he called out. He said, hey, Jesus, if you're out there, how about handing me that broom? <laughs> Please realize, God wants us to learn that Jesus is with us, even in the dark places. Well, how do you react when situations occur that you don't deserve? Have you grown bitter? Have you become angry? Have you been pounding your fist and demanding an explanation of God? Is your name Job? Well, let me show you how God finally responds to Job. In chapter 38, God comes to Job, but not to answer his questions. Oh, no. God takes a most unexpected tack here. He comes to Job asking questions, not answering them. And for five whole chapters, God asks Job a series of questions he can't possibly answer. A total of 70 unanswerable questions. You see, the Almighty is about to show his servant Job he doesn't know as much as he thinks he does. It's time for God to put Job back in his place. Well, God appears to Job in the whirlwind. And he says to him in chapter 38, verses 2 and 3, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Or literally, who is this guy I've been listening to who doesn't know what he's talking about? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. It's time for God to humble Job, to remind him that you spell the word God, G-O-D, not J-O-B. In verse four, God begins his quiz. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job's been instructing God on how to run the universe. But here God makes it clear he didn't really need Job's help. He was doing fine long before Job came along. God asked Job, he says, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God even becomes sarcastic. He's saying, okay, Job, was it you holding the other end of the tape measure when we measured out the universe? I don't think so. See, throughout the book, Job's constant questioning of God's wisdom implied that he could do a better job of running things than God. But could he? Can you? On and on, God's questions continue. He keeps firing these questions at Job that he has no way to answer. You know, it's interesting, as Job had questioned God, in Job's estimation, he had gotten larger and larger, and God had gotten smaller and smaller. But now when the roles are reversed and God is the one questioning Job, now suddenly in Job's thinking, it's God who's becoming larger and larger again, and it's Job who's becoming smaller and smaller and tiny. See, God, Job gets humbled. Up against God's infinite wisdom, a finite Job knows very little what right does he have to question or criticize the Almighty? I mean, who does Job think he is? Our friend Job has gotten way out of line. Here's a great quote for you. If there's anything a sufferer needs, it's not an explanation, but a fresh new look at God. See, we think we need an answer that will never be satisfied until we know why. But what we really need is a vision of God. For when God appears... Oh, the reason for our trial no longer matters. All that really matters is God. Well, Job thinks he's learned his lesson. Listen to his reply to God in chapter 40, verse 4. 
He says, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. At first, it may seem as if Job has gotten the message, but I don't really think so. See, Job has simply gone from pounding to now pouting. He's gone from being angry with God to now feeling sorry for himself. In essence, he's saying, okay, God, you win. From now on, I'll just shut up and serve you, but you can bet I'm not going to like it. Job is agreeing to serve the Lord, but you can bet he's going to serve God with a grudge. And I got to ask you, do you know anybody who's been serving God begrudgingly, reluctantly? See, Job has accepted God's sovereignty for he has no other choice, but he doesn't really like it. I want you to understand, God doesn't want us to pound or to pout. There is a third option. We can praise God for who he is, come what may. God wants us to embrace his sovereignty with a loving, trusting wholeheartedness. You can say lovingly, Lord, thy will be done. Or you can say begrudgingly, all right then God, have it your way. And here Job is doing the latter. He's giving in only because he has no other choice. And God is not through correcting his attitude. For again, God comes to Job in the whirlwind. And in chapter 40, verse 7, he says, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. God didn't like the first answers he got from Job, and so he has some more questions. And in chapter 40, God points to two enormous, powerful animals, the behemoth and the leviathan. And he asks Job if he can contain these animals, let alone create them. See, Job is, seems pretty puny when pitted up against these mighty forces. God wants in Job what he is after in us. Not reluctance, but real repentance. God wants Job and us to rejoice in his sovereignty, to worship him despite our situation. God wants us to acknowledge that he not only runs the universe, but he runs our lives, and he is better at it than we are, that God does all things well all of the time. The reality is there are truths about God that are hidden, that no one knows all there is to know about God. We all worship God from a limited vantage point. Well, Job finally realizes this in chapter 42, verse 1. This time when Job answers God, he gets it right. He humbly confesses, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Obviously, Job has a change of attitude. Job never did learn why, but he learned something much more important. He learned who. And friends, when you know who, you don't need to know why. There are people I've met whose chief ambition in getting to heaven is to get answers to their questions. And I'm certain when they get there, they'll get their answers. 
But I'm just as certain that in heaven their answers won't be nearly as important as they thought. For when we see the beauty and the glories of our Lord Jesus, all of the perplexities and all of the questions will be overshadowed. In the end, the who will swallow up all of the whys. Following the difficult days of World War II, King George of England, he stated to his countrymen about the uncertainties of the coming new year. I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. He said to me, go out into the darkness and put your hand in the hand of God and it shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known. Imagine that, friends, the hand of God even better than the light, even safer than the known. Some of you are walking out into uncertain futures and you've been questioning God. Don't you think a better approach would be to grip his hand just a little tighter? Once an old man was walking down the path with his young grandson, when he asked the little boy, he said, son, do you know where you are? He said, no, grandpa, I don't. Son, do you know how far you are from home? Oh, no, sir. Well, son, it sounds like to me you're lost. The little boy just grinned. He said, nope, grandpa, I can't be lost. The grandpa asked him, he said, why are you so sure? And that's when the little guy replied, I can't be lost, grandpa, because I'm with you. And that's what God wants us to learn, that even when we don't understand, even with no explanation, we are never lost when we're with God, he can be trusted. So, how do you cope with the pain bush in your life? The unexplained difficulties that might come your way. Here's what Job would tell us. God is sovereign. He is a big God. He takes orders from no one. He does as he pleases without getting our permission or giving us an explanation That's why we need to turn off our complaints and our doubts and our questions and we need to turn on our praise. God is worthy to be worshiped. Love God. Don't fight him. Trust God. Don't question him. Real faith doesn't need to know why when it's certain of who. Always remember this statement. What's over my head is still under God's feet. Would you like to say it with me? You wanna try it one time? Everybody, you ready? Whoa, 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 wait a minute, we'll do it together. I'm just waiting on everybody to get their hand up. Everybody ready? What's over my head is still under God's feet. That was really lame. Pastor Josh, I can't believe your people didn't do anything louder than that. You wanna do it one more time? All right, three, two, one. What's over my head is still under God's feet. God loves you. In fact, God is so proud of you, he has staked his honor on your reactions. Imagine this. God believes that your response to difficulty is gonna bring him glory. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And Lord, we... We lay our doubts and our questions and our pounding and our pouting all before you. 
Lord, so many times in the past we've demanded an explanation and we're sorry. Lord, that you have reasons that will be revealed to us in due time. But right now, you're expecting us to trust you. You're our father, and we're your children. And as a father doesn't owe his child an explanation for everything, neither do you owe us. Lord, build up our faith. Help us to trust you, Lord, even without an explanation, even in the dark places of life. Lord, we honor you. We glorify you when we trust you, for we know who you are and the great God that you are. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you. Lord, build up our faith today. Help us to leave this room, Lord, determined to trust you, even in the dark places, even when we can't trace you, Lord. Help us trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you.